Colossians chapter 1. For the past few weeks, we have been looking at the biblical basis for and the practical implications of our renewed and refocused emphasis on disciple-making. And as a kind of a big-picture summarizing statement, we borrowed from Tony Payne who says this, Because God's agenda for the world is to transfer us into Christ's kingdom and to transform us to be like Christ, then our agenda is to press forward towards maturity in Christ by prayerfully setting our minds on God's word and to move others toward maturity in Christ by prayerfully speaking God's word to them. Uh, Pastor Joe and Pastor Richard and I believe that statement reveals a, a great, simple, biblical statement that that reflects both why and how we are to be about the business of making disciples as the people of God. And for the past few weeks, we have been unpacking what that means in greater detail. We have been seeing how that vision of Christian ministry is rooted in the biblical text and what practical implications there are for us as individuals and for us collectively as a church. And we have seen how God's agenda is focused on the gospel of Christ. That is, everything God has done in the past, everything he has doing now and how everything he is going to do in the future is centered on the coming of his son, his life, death, and resurrection. And we saw how it's the proclamation of that news of the gospel through the word of God that people experience real lasting spiritual change in their life. And today we want to pick up where we left off and think more about now the actual process of seeing people mature in Christ. In order to do that, I want us to revisit a passage that we saw a couple months ago from Colossians chapter 1. And though we are going to really focus on verses 28 through 29... Uh, in order for uh, us to see the, the larger context and be able to draw from the chapter as a whole, I want us to begin reading at verse 9. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. I would encourage you to follow along as I read. Paul writes to the Colossians, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of God. As we focus in on the last two verses, we really are seeking to understand better Paul's method for disciple making. The reality is there are tons of books on the shelf today on this very subject, how to go about making disciples. You can get books that have titles like The Disciple Making Church and The Disciple Making Pastor. And you've got people that will talk about different methods and different strategies and the pros and cons of all of them. And some of those books are very good and some of those books are great for doorstops as well or perhaps to hold your window open at night or or, uh, to put your drink on so it doesn't ruin your coffee table. Uh, But uh, in all those things, really what we need to ask ourselves is, what what does the man himself say? What did he do? Because after Jesus, Paul was the master disciple maker in the New Testament. More than anyone else, we see both his life and his methodology coming together for this goal of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of that name. So this morning, we want to see the goal, the means, and the cost of disciple-making as it is reflected in the life and methodology of the Apostle Paul. At the end, we will then be thinking through the implications for us. If we are to follow that example, what will our lives look like? What should we be thinking about? What should we be doing? How should we be partnering together as a church? So the first thing we want to see this morning is the goal of disciple-making. The goal of disciple-making, and what we see is that it is this, maturity in Christ. The goal of disciple-making, maturity in Christ. Paul states this as his goal. It's not implicit, it's not uh, hidden, it's not something we have to try and figure out. Uh, He's very clear that he does what he does, verse 28, so that he may present everyone mature in Christ. That's it. That is the goal of disciple making, to present everyone mature in Christ. It is both simple and profound, it is both easy and difficult all at the same time. Notice, first of all, that it's everyone that he is seeking to make mature in Christ. That means disciple-making is not just about maturing believers. I know very often we think that way. I think we have line items in our budget that way. We have kind of evangelism, then we have discipleship. And that's okay if we understand what we're doing there, but the reality is biblically, in terms of making disciples and discipleship, the New Testament says it's all one package. From the moment you take someone who has nothing about God, nothing about Christ, nothing about uh, his, his plan for the world in his son, and begin telling them, you are seeking to make a disciple. And, and that continues all the way through past their point of conversion, past their entry into a church, past their, the, their maturation process, all the way to the glorification that God himself will do, bringing to final fulfillment, giving the graduation diploma, as it were, of your life as a disciple. All of that is considered making disciples. It includes everything that we do in engaging with people in the world to see them come to faith in Christ and helping them grow in maturity 
to Christ. That's what disciple making is about. Helping everyone be mature in Christ. What is this what is this idea of maturity though? What is Paul talking about here? Well, I have to say it doesn't have anything to do with age. Um, and that's, that's good for me because I'm younger than most of you. So uh, <laughs> that's, 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 that's encouraging. At least it should be for you and for me. It doesn't have anything to do with age. It might have something to do with age. It should have something to do with age. If you've been a Christian for two years and, you, or, and someone else has been a Christian for eight years, the person who's been a Christian for eight years should be more mature than you who've been a Christian for two years. But that's not necessarily the case. In one of his books, Donald Whitney uh, it's a book, the, the Spirit of Disciplines or something like that. It's a spiritual disciplines book. He talks about the necessity of the Word of God. And, and, and part of in there, part of that chapter, he talks about, in fact, I think he opens the chapter with this. He talks about uh, a time when he went to Africa to work on a short-term mission trip doing disciple-making in these villages that had already been uh, Christianized. That People had already come through and had made disciples, but then... They were part of a strategy that said the best approach is to very quickly evangelize, organize a church, and then move out of there, let them go, and do it on and on and on and on and on. Well, guess what the problem was? Here was a bunch of people who who had heard the gospel, they had believed, and now they had nothing. They had no Bible in their language. They had no no, no, no long-term modeling of godliness. All they had were six sermons that the missionary had left behind. And so the the quote-unquote pastor would get up, and every six weeks he would literally read through the exact same sermon. So when Whitney and the other guys were there, what they found was um, not only immature, but a group of so-called Christians that were just rife with immorality and just about every sin you can possibly imagine. Why? Because no one had taken the time to disciple them. No one had taken the time to help launch them on a path towards maturity in Christ. They had just been evangelized and left for themselves. So though they had been saved, we believe, for years, they were not mature. They were not growing in their faith. They were just barely clinging to life. And so being mature doesn't have to do with age. It doesn't have to do with how long you've been a Christian. It has to do with whether or not you look like Jesus Christ. Well, not physically. I know some of you think I'm trying to look like Christ with this beard going or whatever, but that's not what we're talking about. Well, spiritually, Paul is clear again and again and again. It is conformity to the moral, spiritual, perfect image of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. That is what we are striving for. So we don't compare ourselves to somebody else. We compare ourselves to Christ. We don't compare ourselves to this very famous Christian, this famous missionary or something. They may have good, a good example for us to follow, but at the end of the day, the criteria for our maturity is nothing less than Jesus himself. And therefore, day by day, moment by moment, what we are desiring is to see small and big transformations so that more and more we look like Jesus Christ. And what we need to understand is that this is a process. This is a process. You, you, you don't, you know, sit under one sermon and, and suddenly you're there, you've arrived. Or, or maybe, you know, uh, go through a course over a weekend. I know sometimes, we, we, you know, those things are helpful and they move us down the road a little bit. But it's not just like, okay, boom, I'm done, boom, I'm done, okay, I've, I've arrived. No, it is, a, it is a process made up of a thousand different decisions that take place over the course of years in your life. In fact, the diagram there in your notes is meant to, to help us see what, broadly speaking, this process looks like. 
You have someone there who, who is far away from God. They don't, they don't know who he is. They've never heard of Jesus Christ. Someone makes contact with them. Someone talks to them, befriends them. Someone shares the gospel with them. They believe. They are now a new Christian. And therefore, they have a life of growing and struggle and training for ministry. And notice, what is the end goal of all of this? Maturity in Christ. They've experienced a transfer from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son, and now they're seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. This is what we're seeking to do with people. This is the whole point. The Christian is not meant to stay put once they are a Christian. He or she is, is meant to grow and mature. And it doesn't just happen once. It happens over the course of our lives. And so if we are going to be like Paul, seeking to make disciples, the question we're going to be asking ourselves is, where is the person on the, on the chart here? Now, obviously, we're not, we don't need to carry this around like a card. I mean, this is just a, a visual aid here. The point is, what do they need to mature? Where are they? According to the title of the message, how do we move them to the right? That's what we're talking about. How do we move them towards maturity in Christ? Where are they in the process and what do they need next? That, that phrase, moving people to the right, is not inherently an inspired phrase. It's not even a flawless phrase. In fact, it only works with that chart. But I think it get, it's an easy way of shorthand for the point that we're making here. It's evaluating how do we help this person mature in Christ. How do we move them? Maybe it's a small way, maybe it's a big way. But how do we keep them moving down the process of being conformed to the image of God's Son? Secondly, we see the means of discipleship as well from Paul. The means of discipleship, proclaiming Christ. Proclaiming Christ. Notice again, verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says, this is how we seek to present everyone mature in Christ. We proclaim Christ. Him we proclaim, he says. But who is the him? What is so unique about Christ that warrants telling people about him. Well, just before this, in verse 26, Paul says that Christ is the revelation of the mystery of God that was once hidden for ages and generations. What is this mystery? It is, verse 27, the riches of the glory of God's saving grace. Christ is therefore the hope of glory. That is, he is the hope, the means by which we receive God's saving grace and are brought into the glory of his presence. And earlier in the chapter, we saw uh, how Christ is able to be the Savior, why he is the focus of God's plan to save sinners. What did Paul say? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the Christ that Paul proclaims in order to see everyone mature in Christ. This is the Christ you proclaim to the person who's never heard before. This is the Christ that you proclaim to the person who's been saved for 50 years. Because it is the same message, the same Christ that continually beats into the recesses of our deepest uh, thinking and feeling and changes us to love him more and more and more. This is the person of Christ 
and the nature of a saving work. He is God in the flesh. He is the one who both created history and stepped into history. He is the one who is both the ruler of all things and became the servant of all people. He is the most glorious, perfect, exalted being in the universe who made himself to be counted as the most sinful, wretched, and debased of humanity. He is the great high priest who offered not an animal, but himself as the perfect sacrifice for sinners. It was by his life, death, and resurrection that he stands in the place of sinners, living a life for them, dying a death for them, rising again to life for them. He does this in order to do what we can never do, which is bring ourselves to God. Christ is the bridge that spans the infinite gulf between wicked rebels and a just God. Therefore, in Acts 4, Peter says, there is salvation in no one else and in no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is why Christ must be proclaimed. This is why he was proclaimed by Paul. He alone is the Savior of the world. And notice how he proclaims Christ. He says, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Now most of us are eager to teach people about Christ. We're, we're, we're eager to, to tell them the good stuff. That, that he is the Savior. That he is kind towards sinners. That he is merciful and loving. But where we often run into problems is the warning of people. We don't like to do that. In fact, most of us cringe and run and avoid trying to warn someone. Even if it's a close friend, we don't want to tell someone they're sinful. We don't want to say, I've observed this in your life and it is not right. Perhaps here is an evidence of your life that you are sinful, that you have been sinful from birth, and God says, therefore, you will die in eternal punishment in hell for your rebellion against him. Come to Christ. Perhaps it's, it's pointing out you have professed faith in Christ, but your life is not matching up. Dear friend, this is not the pattern of behavior that we see in our Savior. It needs to change. We don't like to do that, do we? In fact, I think that probably this has been no more evident than last year's big kerfuffle with the issue of hell and Rob Bell and how uh, just it kind of exploded within uh, people who were reading these articles and talking about it. And that is, we, we may affirm the existence of hell, but we don't like it and we don't want to talk about it. And we don't want to warn people who are going there, even though that's the reality of life. You even have some people who say, well, I'm a Christian, but the God that I love would never send anyone to hell. I don't think that's in the Bible. Now, the, now the reality is they make horrible interpretive arguments from the Bible. I mean, Jesus himself uh, talks more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. He talks more about hell than he does heaven. And yet somehow they, they, they want to wiggle around it. So, so the, the point is not that, well, this is a viable option for evangelical theology. No, it's not. It's an emotional response. We don't like telling people they're going to hell. We don't like telling people they're sinners. We don't like warning them there is a problem with your life. It makes us uncomfortable, in part because we know we have a problem with our life. But more than that, we want to be liked by people. That really is what it comes down to. We don't want to tick anybody off. We don't want someone to think less of us. We don't want someone to shun us, to yell at us, or to be mean to us. Therefore, we refuse to warn people. But this is the very thing that Paul says he does. Why? Number one, because Christ deserves to be proclaimed in all of his glory. 
But more than that, he loves people. He cares about them. He loves them enough to say, unless you repent and turn and find forgiveness and mercy in Christ, it's done. Your life is over. And you will experience an eternal torment of hell. doesn't mean we have to be gleeful about the warning. doesn't mean we, we say it with, with a wink and a nudge. We should, we should talk about hell with tears in our eyes. But if we're really going to proclaim Christ, we not only proclaim His loving, saving work, but the fact that He will one day judge the world. But the reality is, we need not be judged if we will simply repent and fly to Him and the mercy that He offers. In all of this, Paul says he proclaims wisely. That means he actually thinks about what does the person need to hear? Where are they at? How can I best proclaim Christ to see them mature? This brings us to our last point. That is the cost of disciple-making. The cost of disciple-making, and it is this, struggling with Christ. Struggling with Christ. Once more, Paul says this, verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul portrays the work of disciple-making as something that requires him to toil and struggle. In other words, the Christian ministry of disciple-making isn't easy. It's not something that just happens, but something that comes with a high cost. Paul's own experience was pretty brutal. And it involved much suffering. And loved ones, Paul was not an exception to the rule. Not in one sense he was. He was a unique man with a unique mission for the church. But in other ways, he's just like you and me. And the lesson that we take away from his life and his example is that we should not shun suffering when it means it will help others become mature in Christ. We need to realize that real Christian ministry involves real people. Some who are Christians and some that aren't. You know, I heard somebody say one time, I hope it was tongue-in-cheek, I took it that way, ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. That's what ministry is about as people. And that means it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, it's going to be painful, it's going to be messy. You will get stepped on. You will be inconvenienced. Like Paul, you may even suffer. But what did he say? It's worth it. It's worth it to see people mature in Christ. Whenever I, whenever I think about that attitude in Paul, I, uh, my mind immediately goes to uh, Rocky Balboa fighting Clubber Lane. I don't know if, you've, if you saw these movies or not, but uh, it's the third movie. Uh, in the first one, uh, it was a draw. He didn't win the title. He just went the distance. The second one, he actually gets the title. The third one now, he's gotten soft. Now he's the celebrity boxer, but he's been fighting joke fights, and when he actually goes against Clubber Lane, he loses. He gets just literally, uh, the, the, the mat is uh, swept away uh, from, out, uh, from, out, from under him, and, and so now he has to go back to the basics. He has to go back to, to training again and, and getting that hard edge. He has to get, in the context of the movie, the eye of the tiger back. And so in the context of the film then, it's the final fight, and he, and he basically just drops his hands and he lets Clubber Lane go to work on him. I mean, uh, every throw and punch, hook, jab, uppercuts, he has taken it. And, and he starts talking smack to the guy. You ain't so bad. You ain't so bad. You ain't so bad. Bam, bam. You ain't so bad. Bam, bam. You ain't so bad. Now, why is he doing that? Because he knows he's just going to, Clubber's just going to wear himself down, and then poof, he's going to throw the haymaker and win. That's his strategy. Now, that, that visual image, though, 
is stuck in my mind. I, you just imagine all the things that Paul went through. Think, think about all of the, all the difficulty, all of the pain. He is nearly stoned to death in one town. He has, has had to sneak out of another through a hole in the wall. He's mocked and he's chided. He's brought up on false charges of political insurrection. He's thrown in prison. He's beaten by religious leaders. He goes and invests years in, in establishing a church and immediately false teachers come behind and start undermining his work. He even turns some of the church, they even turn some of the churches against him so they don't respect Paul anymore and they think he's, uh, he's, a, he's a crazy, selfish man. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, he's beat up, he's in pain. And you know what he's saying? It ain't so bad. It ain't so bad. It ain't so bad. Why? Because through it all, people came to a maturing knowledge of Jesus Christ. Through his endurance of pain and suffering, both emotional and physical and spiritual, the gospel went forward with power and people were moved to the right. People who were enslaved in the kingdom of darkness were liberated and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. As he patiently worked with them, he then brought them to a place of maturity, even training them for ministry and establishing elders and deacons and churches that he left behind to go and plant others. This is the cost of discipleship, people. It, it, it's, not, it's not just something that's going to be all roses and flowers. You just need to know, as, as we embark on this, on this new emphasis, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. But notice how Paul did it. It's not, that, it's not that Paul was Rocky Balboa. I mean, you're going to get to heaven and see Sylvester Stallone, you know, with, with a beard and a robe and a Bible in his hand. It's not going to happen. Now, I hope you see Sly there one day. We should pray for that. But that's not, that's not the same with Paul. How did he do this? He did it because he didn't rely on himself. He kept up the kind of intensity in ministry that he is known for. He kept up this, this persevering attitude despite suffering because he was relying on God. Verse 29, he says, For this I toil, struggling with what? With all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. This is, this is the source of Paul's strength. This is the source of his ability to endure frustration and pain and sorrow and slander and poverty for the cause of disciple-making and not grow weary to the point of giving up. It's because he relied on the strength that God gives. This is the picture of disciple making that, that Paul gives to us. This is the example that he leaves for us to follow. Now, what are the practical implications of that? What, what needs to take place in our life so that we could be following along the same strategy that Paul did? First of all, this. We need to be concerned about and work for our own maturity. We need to be concerned about and work for our own maturity. I have to confess, on all these four application points, I, I labored over the wording and, and how to do it. And, and it, it sound, I know it sounds a little clunky, but, but to be honest, both things really need to be there. We need to both be concerned for these things, but then beyond that, we also need to work for them. And, and, and if you try and work for it without being concerned about it, then, then you're going to tire out and fail and just be done with it. But we also... We also, we also need not just be concerned about it and say, yeah, this is important. This is something we're going to do. We also got to work for it. We also got to work for it. So that's how all these start. Be concerned about and work for first our own maturity. Surely the, the focus of the message 
uh, today, the, the, the focus of these verses is about moving other people to the right. How do I do that and how can I be involved? But, but the first question we have to ask ourselves is, how am I maturing in Christ? Where am I at on this line? How am I being moved farther to the right? Jesus never calls any of his disciples to play it safe, to click on the, the coast button, or to engage autopilot. He calls his disciples to be learners who obey his commands. That means... That means maturing in him. If we were really his disciples, it may not be great. We may not even be able to discern it in the, in the short run. But in the long run, we are on the constant path of maturing in Christ. So that means before you ever think about helping someone else move to the right, you have to ask yourself, where am I at in this process? And am I actively seeking to be matured? The basic rule of thumb is this, you're, you're qualified to move someone to the right, uh, anyone to the right, as long as they're to your left. You understand what I'm saying? If you don't, then flip the page over and, and just pop your finger down there, okay? In other words, you say, well, you know, I, I can't help anybody mature in Christ. I'm a new believer. You're a believer, aren't you? What does that mean? That means there's a whole world of people that are to your left. They're not believers. They're still in the domain of darkness. You just tell them what someone told you and you help bring them into the kingdom of God's beloved son. If, if, if you are down that line, you feel like I want a little bit mature, then guess what? You're not only qualified to evangelize and make disciples by bringing them into the kingdom, you're now qualified to take a new believer and show them the ropes. Here's how you pray. Here's how you read the Bible. Here's why we serve and here's how we do it. And yeah, that's not how you should raise your kids, and that's not how you should treat your spouse. This is how you do it, because this is what God says, and this is how it reflects Jesus Christ and his example. Okay? So you start by asking, where am I? What do I need? And frankly, there'll be some of you, you're first, you know, in the coming days and weeks, as all this kind of dust settles and, and, uh, and, and programs are slightly rearranged and altered, and you hear different things going on, the first thing you may have to do is say, I need someone to, to help me move to the right because I know I am not where I, where I should be. And you just need to identify wherever you're at and the fact that, you know, not everyone is immediately going to jump in and, and, and start having all these relationships where you're helping to move people. No, you say, I, I need help. I need someone to come alongside me. And you may have to seek that out and say, hey, you want to help me move to the right? Because, because, because I, I, I need that. That's, that's good. Because all of us need that. That's the reason why I have two other pastors who are helping me move to the right. Because none of us are there. None of us have arrived. But beyond that then, we need to be concerned about and work for other people's maturity as well. We need to be concerned about and work for other people's maturity. Are you, ask the question of yourself, are you actively involved in helping make others mature in Christ? How? How are you doing that? And it's not because it's not only important to ask what you're doing, but to also ask how you're doing it. Are you seeking to move specific people to the right? Remember Paul's words about warning and teaching wisely? I think he tells us a little bit about what that looks like in 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5, he says this, to, to, the, to all the Christians, we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying everybody's in a different place. And they all need something different. The idol don't need to be, you, 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 don't, you don't need to be helping them the same way you help a weak person. You need to admonish them. Hey, get up off your lazy butt and do something. 
All right, that's the Botkin paraphrase. I don't think that's in, I don't think it's in the Living Bible or even the message. But that, that's what Paul is saying. You know, if you're an idle Christian, just kind of sitting there doing nothing, get up and work, okay? But you've got someone who is weak in the faith, then you come alongside them and help them, help strengthen them, love them, show affection to them. And those that are, are faint-hearted, you need to encourage them, hey, come on, keep persevering. We can do this together. And in all of it, what does he say? You're patient with all of them. So there is a kind of mindset that covers all the bases, and yet we're also looking at specific people and asking them, what do they need? And so we need to think like a parent. We need to look at people and think like a parent. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying there. I don't mean that to be condescending as if, well, I'm the parent and you're the child, and I know what's, what's best for you, and I've got it all figured out. That's not what we're saying here. But, but any parent who treats every single one of their kids the same is a fool. They all have different personalities. They all have different needs. There's different styles of discipline that should be brought to bear on all of them. And therefore, people are the same way. And therefore, we look at them with love and care and don't just say, well, you know, I've got this Bible study and that just works for everybody. It, it, you can probably take everybody to that Bible study, but you've got to ask, what do they need? What do I hit? What do I highlight? Where is this person at in their walk and how can I help them? So, for example, if I'm taking, if I've got a new Christian, I just led them to, to, to Christ, what am I going to do with them? I'm probably not going to sit down and start a Bible study through Deuteronomy or Ecclesiastes or Revelation, okay? Just, there's not going to be a lot of value in that, practically speaking, is there? Not because it's not the God's Word, not because it's not helpful, but what I'm going to do, I want to say, what do they need? They need to be re, reaffirmed in their belief in Christ, that He is a great and glorious God and a wonderful Savior. They need to understand that, that Jesus cherished the Word of God, that He was always praying to God, and they do the same thing. So my mind begins to take, what do they need? Guess where I'm going to take them for a Bible study? What are the Gospels? Hey, look at your Savior. Because the more you look at Him, the more you're going to love Him, and the more you're going to be like Him. Now, on the other hand, let's say I've got someone who's getting along really well in the Christian life. They, 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 they are mature but they want to take them to the next level. Well, then I may take them to Deuteronomy and Ecclesiastes and Revelation. I may push them to, to become more intense, more focused, more equipped in their teaching and reading skills of the Bible so that way then I can help them learn to, to teach other people the Bible as well. Likewise, if someone is struggling with their assurance of salvation, I'm not going to take them through an intense Bible study of God's uncompromising holiness and, and how he calls us to that. That's going to wreck them. They're going to think, well, I'm never going to get in. No, you don't do that. What do you do? You take them through passages that show again and again and again God's unrelenting, unyielding, unstoppable love for the weakest of people who simply say, God, please forgive me, a sinner. That's what you're going to do. But the person who is getting kind of nonchalant about the Christian life, who you know, is pushing the bounds in terms of their activities and not seeming to really care about holiness, I'm going to take them to that first study. And I want to bring them face to face with the same God that Isaiah was brought with. So that they're brought to their knees and saying, I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And they know I need holiness. You see what I'm saying here? The point is to help them understand uh, to well, really for you to first understand where they're at so that you can understand how to help them. And the easiest way to do that is just to jot down the names of the people around you and, and, and just kind of chart out where are they at spiritually. How can I help them? Neighbors, loved ones, your kids, parents. Do this for your kids and ask, how can, how can I help them move to the right? I love what Marty Sweeney says. He says this, don't just have to-do lists, have people lists. 
Think through the people who are closest to you and how you can disciple them. This will reshape your to-do list, which will also reshape your prayer list and your reading list. There's an example for you right there in the notes. Have a people list. This brings us to the third implication. Be concerned about and work for generosity in our pursuit of maturity. Be concerned about and work for generosity in our pursuit of maturity. Remember what Paul said about toiling and struggling? Now, I'll just be honest. Most of you are never going to get thrown in prison because you're making disciples. I mean, that's just the reality uh, of, of things, at least not at this point. Maybe 20 years if the Lord tarries the way some things are going in this country. It looks like maybe you might. But for now, it's not going to happen. So, so where do we struggle the most? If you want to hurt an American, where do you shoot them? The pocketbook, right? The wallet, the checkbook. That's what you aim for. They're like, ow, oh, oh, mortal wound, medic, medic. I mean, that's how we feel, right? And, and, and therefore, we need, to, we need to realize then if that, is, if that is our weak point, guess what? That's exactly, where, that's exactly where God wants us to start working. We need to be thinking in terms of our generosity. It means giving up our money. It means giving up our resources. Whatever we have, not just throwing them away, but realizing we are investing those things in other people, helping them move to the right. It may mean we don't get to, to go out to eat as much. It may mean that we don't get to have the kind of car that we want. It may mean that we don't get to have the second or the third house or, or the, the extra pair of shoes or whatever it is. But we're investing in people who will last for eternity. And those other things don't. And we know that intellectually, but, but the way that we often live and cling to those things, we don't live like we believe that. Paul is calling us to a sense of radical generosity for the sake of disciple-making. I don't like to brag on my friends all that much but um, because it might give them big heads and then I have to come back through and pop it with, you know, uh, biblical needles. Uh, but have you ever thought about the other people that are on this year's mission trip team? Now, Micah got to miss a week of school, so I can't pat him on the back too much. I mean, he was enjoying that. But, uh, you know, the other two guys had to take vacation time. You know, you, you all are very generous, and you say, if you go on a mission trip, that, that's fine, that's ministry, you just go do it for the glory of God. Their jobs don't get to do that for them. So, so they have to burn vacation time in order to make that trip and, and that investment. That, that, that is costing them something. Now, again, I'm not saying that to raise them up at the show. Disciple-making is going to cost you something. It's going to cost you materially, but more than that, it's going to cost you emotionally, too. That there is going to be an investment in people that is not going to come easy. Just this week, Pastor Scotty Smith put out this on Twitter. Good relationships are going to, going to cost you and hurt you. If you care about somebody, you're going to get close to them. And when you get close to them, you're going to have to be brutally honest with them. And that's going to hurt. Both them and you if they don't respond well. And you know what Paul said? It's worth it. It's worth it. Because it means you're helping them move to the right. Still yet, giving generously may also mean giving up our time. If it's true that time is money, then we're back to the first thing. That mortal wound in the American soul hitting our wallet. What do I mean by giving up of our time? It means if you're serious about helping move people to the right, you're probably going to have to spend some amount of time being trained on how to do it more effectively. You, you may not do like I did and go through four years of undergraduate and three and a half years of master level work in order to do that. That was a pretty big chunk of time and investment. It might just mean you read a book. I know for some of you that that's like an eternity in your mind. But, hey, there it is. 
If you don't like the book, find, find a good uh, workshop series on CD and listen to it. Or better yet, spend time with somebody else who's already doing it. Watch them. Learn from them. Follow their example. Some of you have already started this just by showing up on Sunday morning for our train time. It's going to start now and run for eight more weeks. And we just want to equip you with practical nuts and bolts kind of things to help you better know how to move people to the right. Finally, we need to be concerned about and work for a Christ-centered maturity. We need to be concerned about and work for a Christ-centered maturity. Everything Paul did was focused on the personal work of Christ. As we think about moving people to the right, we need to remember what's on the right. Maturity to Christ. We aren't concerned with making someone conform to a tradition or our expectations or our preferences or making them clones of ourself. Instead, we are seeking to help them be conformed to the image of Christ by the power of the gospel of Christ. So once more, I put it to you and I ask you, is this what our life is about? Because God's agenda for the world is to transfer us into Christ's kingdom and to transform us to be like Christ, then our agenda should be to press toward maturity in Christ by prayerfully setting our minds on God's word and to move others toward maturity in Christ by prayerfully speaking God's word to them. May that be the reality of our life and our desire for ministry. God, we're so thankful for all that you have done for us through your son. God, help us not to forget that this work continues on. That God, you've not just saved us, but now you desire to grow us. You've not just justified us, but you desire to sanctify us. And that God, you plan to use us in those great works. Father, help us to be actively seeking your face that we might grow and mature. And God, help us to seek out others to know what they need and how best we can come alongside them to help them seek after you that they might grow and mature. Father, we pray that you would help us to realize not only how we go about helping people mature, but what it's going to cost us. And yet, Father, help us to see that it is worth it. It is worth it. Paul said that he could count all things as a loss that he could look at everything the world valued and said it is garbage because it cannot compare to the surpassing worth of knowing your son, Jesus Christ. And I would add, helping others know him as well. Father, that is not an attitude that comes naturally to us. That is not one that we're just going to convince ourselves to have. You need to do a work in our own hearts. You need, through sermons like this and through other things that we read in your word, God, you need to change us to give us a kind of people-centered heart that you have. God, may you do that for the sake of your church. In Christ's name, amen.